This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Naomi Shulman about her book, but also about some other things. Her book is called Be Kind, uh, You Can Make the World a Happier Place. How are you, Naomi? I'm fine, thank you. So uh, I found you, I think you probably know that a lot of people have found you online because of something that you wrote a few years ago. Um, about, I guess, about the time that um, our fearless leader was coming to power. And the quote, which I will read, although you should probably read it, is, nice people make the best Nazis. My mom grew up next to them. They got along, refused to make waves, looked the other way when things got ugly, and focused on happier things than politics. They were lovely people who turned their heads as their neighbors were dragged away. You know, who weren't nice or were nice people, resistors. And I, I guess we ha- I want to start just by thanking you for writing that because I think it is a very powerful statement. It's resonated for a lot of people, and me included. Um, but tell me a little bit about, and I know you've re- also written an, a, a piece recently that I read about the difference between nice and kind. And that relates back to the book that we will be talking Mm -hmm. about in a minute. But so I want to draw a kind of line between that quote, which is very political and also very powerful, and how you get to the notion of kindness through uh, a kind of opposition to niceness. Right. So (laughs) when I wrote that quote, I wasn't thinking very deeply about the difference between nice and kind. Um, It was actually a moment of just pure fury (laughs) for me. It was a Sunday morning and I was on Facebook and I just wrote something very quickly. And to my surprise, it went viral. I had no idea that it would have that effect on people. Um, And the piece that I wrote to kind of further explain it, which appeared in the Cognizante blog for WBUR, actually came after the Facebook post. Um, the Facebook post was just an off-the-cuff moment because I was just angry and, and really what was underneath the anger was just fear, just absolute fear. Um, my mother had died about a year prior and I had just um, observed the anniversary of her death. And then Trump came into office the next day and it was horrifying and there was a part of me that was relieved that my mother wasn't there to see it, but I was also really just terrified about what might be to come. And I'm sorry to say that I don't feel better about it three or four years later than I did then. No, I wasn't thinking. (laughs) No, what's stunning, what's stunning to me is that you said this right away, recognizing viscerally something that I think it's taken far too many people far too long to recognize. I think when you grow up with a family history of people feeling um, scared for you know, for their country and for their lives, it has a, a kind of um, epigenetic effect. And I know I was not the only one by far who recognized what was going on, but I think more people do now. And hopefully that will have an effect in the upcoming election. We'll see what happens. Well, but anyway. Yeah, go uh, keep going. Sorry, go no, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you so much. No, no. So what I was going to say is when I wrote that, I wasn't thinking, to to get to your second question, I wasn't thinking so much about the language I was using. And I am glad that I used the word nice 
because it really does mean something different to me than kindness does. And I said this in a a piece later that you just referred to. Um, I feel that niceness is an affect and kindness is an action. And sometimes they can be, you know, mixed and matched, but in the end, one can be very nice and still not do anything. And I'm not sure that you can really say the same thing about being kind. I think when you're kind, there is some level of an action, even if it's very subtle, that comes behind it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that by almost definitionally, niceness is a an attitude or a, a beingness, whereas kind is a is an active. Um, exactly, and that's not to besmirch being nice. I mean, I I wish more people were nice, but you can be nice and still not do anything. Well, you can also be, you can be nice and that's a veneer for cruelty or for even for inaction, for not standing up when you see something that should be called out. You can be nice and never say a thing. You're essentially passively allowing Mm -hmm. wrongdoing or evil or even just a minor infraction to occur because it wouldn't be nice to bring up something that, you know, that, that would be uh, controversial or difficult. And I think it's it's hard, as you alluded to, I think in that piece that you wrote, it's very difficult for us to confront um, actions that we feel are incorrect or need to be called out in a positive way. Um, this is a difficulty that, you know, we're not trained for in a certain way. We're trained to be kind of socialized into being uh, nice into be you know because it's it's a way for humans to get along with one another is to not let conflict overwhelm us. And I think um, you know thinking about how human beings get along with each other makes me think of etiquette. And one of the rules of etiquette that you know I think a lot of us hold dear is that you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. It's just not discussed in polite society. But it, that rule just does not hold anymore. And I think it can feel rude for people to speak up about something that might feel political, but we're no longer playing by those rules anymore. I, I don't think we can. I don't think we have that luxury. No, I agree. I think that it, there's also been a kind of underlying tendency that people have to accuse people who s- uh, compare the current environment with the past you know when you it's almost like you shall never say that um trump right. is like hitler that's just going too far um you know that be, that the holocaust is sacred and sacrosanct it could not possibly be replicated look he hasn't killed anybody you know things like that and i don't mm-hmm. i think that the failure there is to recognize actual history is to read mm-hmm. about what happened and I, you know i because of my family background, I am very concerned about what happened in Europe, particularly in Germany, in the years prior to and after 1933, which I think are, you know, I think that's a core or kind of uh, uh, specific time. But it, I think people here are, are just not understanding the gravity and the danger of what we're about to or what we're facing now. Well, I mean, we're we're kind of in it. There's yeah. been um, studies um, or scholars of fascism have started pointing out the ways in which we're already kind of far along the spectrum, much further along than I think we ever expected we could be. Yeah. So, 
That's fun. <laughs> I <laughs> want to talk about a children's book now. Yeah, I know. It's sort of, well, but I think that is actually a really interesting uh, uh, background discussion to have in the fact mm-hmm. that you've written this book, which is, um, I think, probably easy to mistake as just a nice, to use that word, um, children's book, where I think you're trying to do something different here. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was that prompted you to write um, this book of uh, instructions for children on how to actively be kind. Well, so yes, this is this is more of a how-to than just a idea book, I guess. Um, I I would say that my uh, my children really were a big impetus for me, but it's not because they were particularly kind kids. They were average garden variety kids who were sometimes kind and sometimes unkind, just like everybody else. But they went to a school here in town, a Jewish day school, where they were learning um, mitzvot, the commandments that are very often about how to be kind to your neighbor. And we're learning how to put them into action in the schoolroom. Things like taking care of the sick, uh, taking care of the earth, taking care of animals. And they're doing it in this context of, you know, this is a blueprint for how to be a person in the world. It's not just because it's a nice thing to do. This is incumbent upon you as a human being. It's your responsibility. And I didn't grow up with that kind of training. I mean, I, I went to the public schools in Northern Vermont and, they were fine, but we didn't have any kind of values curriculum there, and I probably wouldn't have wanted one to be in the public schools. So this was an opportunity that my kids had that I felt was really um, game-changing because it brought the conversation into the home in a way that it might not have otherwise. So everything that's in this book, um, while it's a secular book, is inspired by a lot of those Jewish mitzvot. And if you go through it, you can identify them if you have the the context for it but you don't have to i think they apply to everybody well they have yeah they plainly do and i actually what something you just said i wanted to ask you about because i didn't quite understand why what you meant when you said you wouldn't have wanted a values-based education in the public school do you feel that a a kind of secular non-religious ethical uh values uh, system does not belong in the public schools? No, when you put it that way, obviously not. Um, I was thinking more in terms of what my kids ah, received, okay. which was the Got Jewish it. values. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No, that, but, yeah, I mean, no, that's, we, that, we have to have our values taught to us. <laughs> it's just you don't necessarily want it done in a religious curriculum. Right. And you, and, but there is an argument that people sometimes will make that it's the values are from the parents and the not necessarily from schools. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that is a legitimate position that people sometimes will take. That is a position that people take. I disagree with it. I think that we have cultural values as well. And I I think we want to be um, intentional about what the values are that we teach our kids because they're learning one thing or another, whether we're intentional. 
And it would be better for us to think about what we're actually trying to impart to them. Right. And the other argument that I would make against the ones, people who want to separate values from education is that that's silly in a way, because of course there are values in all for, in education is constantly about values because history is about values. Um, English, you know, if you read any literature whatsoever, values are fully inculcated into the books that we're reading. So, you know, there is a sort of innate uh, canon of ethics and va- moral values. Yeah, it's the water we swim in. We right. don't necessarily realize we're swimming in it, but we right. are. And, and of course, I know that there are people with very strong beliefs that feel that the secular um, education is not strong enough, you know, that they want a biblical or in some, you know, a, 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 a kind of religious um, education, but those, but in that case, you know, maybe they're right. That sh- that's, or maybe what you said is right. That that isn't what the schools are for. Public schools, public schools are for the no. sort of broader secular value system. If you want something that's more specifically religious based, then that happens somewhere else. I would agree with that. Although, even though you know what we probably would all agree on is that the moral values, the essence of all religion, the essence of all moral systems, are pretty much the same. It's just how they're how they're presented. I would say that you know the basic underpinnings are very much the same, and I would also say that you do not have to be a religious person to be a moral person at all. It just so happens that this is the tradition I grew up in and what my children were brought into. So what is the age that you would say this book is for? It felt to me like you would, I mean, you could go fairly young, but it, you know, some of the language and some of the ideas seemed more aimed at, you know, maybe, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, kind of in that area. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the publisher named it as ages five to eight. I think um, one of the things about this book that I love, the illustrations, which I have nothing to do with, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> they're beautiful. And I think part of their brilliance is that they can appeal to very young children, even as the language of the book can skew more like third grade, fourth grade, as you say. And some of the activities can go even a little bit above that. So I think the age range is kind of fluid, but um, it's technically aimed ages five to eight. Yeah. Well, the no, I think the illustrations are great, and I agree that um, they they travel a good range. So that you know, unlike some books where the illustrations clearly will place the book in a particular age group, I think this one is a little broader, um, and it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. I think. Uh, have Have you heard? What? Well, I guess what have you heard? You know, have you heard, been here? Do you hear from parents? Do you hear from children? Uh, do you hear from teachers? Uh, I've heard from all different groups, yes, and people love these illustrations. Um, teachers, I think, really love that there are things that they can do with their classrooms. I know of some teachers who have incorporated the book into their morning meeting ritual, for example, like they'll do a different thing every morning or read a different page every morning. Um, and I think kids really just like the pictures, <laughs> which is fair, you know. I think that's part of what is pleasurable about reading a book when you're that age. And that should be true regardless of whether it's a storybook or a different kind of book. So do, do you feel that, um, is there any particular part of the book that you've been hearing more responses to, you know, whether it's, I mean, I think that there's a lot, you kind of tend to hear a lot about anti-bullying uh, in schools mm-hmm. these days, but are there any other 
kind of uh, or any of the activities, areas, and ideas that you you have that particularly have been responded to? So one of the things that I've heard from um, various people is that some of the activities that are specifically about welcoming new kids or welcoming the stranger have been very well received. Um, it's not so much anti-bullying per se. It's more about creating the expectation that you are going to actively welcome somebody new into your classroom, into your community, um, which is maybe running counter with some of the messages that kids are receiving in other places in the country right now. So I think that message is particularly resonant for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that would make sense. I think there's this, you know, in the same way that there is this rise of negativity and it is a sort of darkness um, that mm-hmm. we feel upon us, um, you know, into that darkness also comes the light that is responding. You know, there's a kind of dialectic of of uh, going on between, you know, wh- however you characterize. I actually try to with try to not say good and evil because I think that that is, um, I think the resonance of that is incorrect. Um, you know, sort of um, positivity versus negativity is more in line with the way mm-hmm. I would like to feel it to be. Um, but it seems like negativity does encourage a lot of people to be positive. I think sometimes that's true. I mean, one of the other things that I was trying to think about with this book is um, how when you do a good deed for somebody, it can inspire somebody to do another good deed. Um, so I think positivity, positivity can build on itself in that way. But I also agree that sometimes people just need to push back against something dark with extra light. And I do think that is something I've seen a little bit more in the past few years in well, some places anyway. Well, and I think, I mean, I think what you just described is that, you know, that there are teachers and parents who want their children to be welcoming of the other to be, and that's not just in terms of the immigration story um, or the multicultural or diversity story, but it's also, you know, for many of us, like I went to different schools when I was a kid and that first day when you walk in and you don't know anybody and they're all looking at Mm -hmm. you, um, I think that's a moment that, that you do talk about in this book. You know, that's the kind of moment when you reach out and say, sit next to me or, you know, can you sit, you know, come with, come to lunch and I'll show you where to sit. Those really simple things absolutely change your life when you're the recipient, when you're on the receiving end of that kind of kindness. Um, I don't think you forget that. You know, I grew up in the same town my whole life. I never experienced being a new kid in a classroom, but I was a shy kid and I was a different kid. And when recess would come, sometimes I would find myself alone. And if another child approached me and invited me into a game, it meant the world to me. So I think even non-strangers can feel the experience of being a stranger. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. I think on some level, uh, you know, you could go take this too far, but we're all strangers in that way. You know, we we ultimately don't really know, you know, who we are when we're growing up. We're trying to figure it out. And so you kind of bounce around from group to group trying to figure out what your identity is uh, or not. Sometimes you don't have a group. So I think that... Um, you know, I think ultimately we all need to be 
we need someone to be kind <laughs> to us. And I think the flip side of that is that we've all at some time or another, whether we realize it or not, have that power of being on the inside, you know? And yeah, yeah. part of part of what I'm hoping kids take away from this is a sense that they they are empowered to to make a difference, even if they feel like the level of control they have is pretty low. I mean, when you're a child, think about all the ways that you don't have control over your destiny. I remember feeling like I was, you know, at the, at adults whims, you know, and feeling like you could take control of a situation in a positive way. It it can be really game changing for kids. That's true. I think a lot of kids um, feel disempowered in their day-to-day lives. And, um, mm-hmm. and there are all sorts of busy, well, it must be even worse today. I think there are, you know, it's so difficult to imagine for me anyway, what it's like to be growing up in this world, as opposed to the world that I grew up in, which was, it was hard enough, but it was a lot easier than this one. Well, so. there weren't phones <laughs> <laughs> that the kids are constantly kind of, you know, tapped into. And I don't remember feeling worried that I was going to be gone down in my classroom. No, but I do recognize that fear very deeply because when I was that in my, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old age, we were doing the, um, you know, under the seat, um, you know, nuclear Mm -hmm. war um, uh, exercises. And we literally had nightmares about all dying in a nuclear attack. Um, so that fear was profound uh, for the k- kids who grew up in the f- late 50s, early 60s. You know, and when Kennedy was shot, there was just this panic that we, mm-hmm. you know, did as little kids, not understanding what was happening. I'm sure that was true for the kids who were young at 911, right, as my kids were. Um, you know, those kind of big events are just terrifying for kids. Um, so I think today the, the, um, active shooter drills. Um, I think yeah. that's, that's pretty um, exhausting. I and, think it's a, a level of trauma for children, for sure. Yeah. And when you feel, I mean, not that, you know, being, not that having the ability to do something kind is going to counteract that kind of thing. I think, you know, we have to come up with some kind of solution to this uh, gun situation. That's entirely a different conversation, but feeling that you have some empowerment in the world is really important for little kids. You know, they're, they're small and they're, um, they're confused very often by what's happening around them. And just being able to feel that they can make some kind of positive difference is, is pretty big. Yeah. Well, and it, one could imagine that a positive outlook for more children who would feel less alienated, less disempowered, less fearful might in fact reduce the number of kids who feel so desperate that they need to either hurt themselves or hurt someone else. Um, I don't think that your book, I mean, I'm not looking for your book to do that, to change the the world (laughs) or solve that problem on a macro level. But I do think it is actually small things that make big changes ultimately. And the notion behind your book, I think has that power. Well, I hope so. I mean, some of the acts that are in this book are very, very small, as I'm sure you know you know, complimenting your cat for having a nice (laughs) tail is pretty small. But um, I also think that when taken together, 
little things add up and create a different way of moving through the world. Yes. And, um, you know, I look at my kids' generation. I think they're amazing. I think um, I'm really impressed by my daughters and their friends and how engaged they are with the world and how seriously they take things. Um, they've pushed me to become more environmentally aware, to to think more about my impact. And I don't think it's necessarily an accident that they're also in this world that just feels really harsh, harsh in a different way than it did when you and I were growing up. I mean, I, I grew up in the eighties and so maybe that was a particularly kind of apathetic time to be a teenager and, and young person. But uh, my kids are, and their friends are just very different from what I remember teenagers being. Yeah. No, I, th- I think it is an amazing difference. This, this generation is definitely different. But they also face massive, massive challenges. <laughs> so I hope that they do better than we did. That's my my greatest hope is that, in fact, they don't uh, make the mistakes that previous generations made. They'll make different ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, they will, but I hope they make better choices yeah. than we did. Me um, too. Um, so just one last question for you. After this book, is do you have another project in mind? Are you thinking of another children's book? Are you writing something for adults or do you just not have anything ready yet? Um, I am actually thinking about a possible sequel to this um, that focuses on gratitude. So that's, I, I don't have anything else to say about that right now. It's in the idea stage, but more of my writing these days um, is essays for my local paper that, uh, I just want to make a plug for local papers in general. I just heard that another conglomerate of local papers just filed for bankruptcy today. And I feel like local newspapers are just so vital and so crucial in ways that we may not even fully understand until they're gone. So um, subscribe to your local paper. (laughs) That's where I'm writing my local paper. Or create your own local paper. I actually think that you are right and totally onto something that's very important that I really believe in, and that is the um, the the voices of people in small com- in communities of all kinds, small and large, mm-hmm. to be to come together and create their own vo- forms of communication. I think it's you know it's an Ameri- American tradition that goes back to the 18th century that we had more newspapers in the United States than any other country in the world, and I think that was one of the strengths of our democracy. So what you're doing, I agree, is very powerful, and I I really appreciate that you're doing that. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Well, I wish you luck. And I will, since I can read most of what you write online, I can probably follow along. So um, I will check out the uh, the local paper and see if I can. <laughs> the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Right, the Daily Hampshire. And, do, and I think they make me do a digital subscription after two or three reads. They probably so. do, but. It's, you know, it's well, worth it. They need to make it. They need to. <laughs> they need to pay the bills and keep the lights on. So exactly. Well, thank you so much, Naomi. It's been really good to talk to you about a variety of subjects, including your wonderful book, "Be Kind." You can make the world a happier place. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been Writers Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. I've been talking to Naomi Shulman. Thank you all. 